This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The rail line linking downtown Denver and DIA opens tomorrow, and that helps Denver Mayor Michael Hancock realize a dream. He pictures an airport city that will spark growth and revenue in the region. Mayor Hancock is here to talk about that and some pressing issues facing the city, like affordable housing, homelessness, and community police relations. Welcome back to the program, Mayor. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be with you. It's been a minute since I've been here, and it feels good to be in the seat again. Well, it has been close to five years since you initially mentioned the idea of an aerotropolis, this airport city. How important is the opening of the train to the plane to making that vision happen? The the train to the plane or the University of Colorado A-Line is is critical, uh, a critical element to the the vision around an aerotropolis. I mean, of course, our aerotropolis is a really a commercial community that kind of grows up around an airport. Uh, companies and industries that want to be around the airport because it allows them to connect more conveniently and affordably uh, to their markets, and and their their markets are global. And so the the goal is for us to be very intentional about our development and and, and, and attraction to the area around the airport, uh, so that we can bring uh, direct foreign investment as well as companies that want to be in our city creating jobs and new opportunities for the people who live here within the region. And you see the train is a key artery to that. Absolutely. Let's look at some of the details. So the train will formally be known, as you say, as the University of Colorado A-Line. That's after CU paid $5 million for the naming rights. The cost to ride from one end to the other is 9 bucks. The trip will take about 40 minutes, six stops in between. You know, doing the math, whether the train makes sense economically, at least from downtown to the airport uh, or the reverse of that, it seems to depend on how long you'll be gone. In other words, how long your car will sit in a paid parking lot, whether you have to pay to get to a station, taking a taxi or a lift. Right. Um, I wonder if we have you on a year from now, how will you have measured the train's success? Is it ridership? Is it traffic reduction? Mm -hmm. Is it more people flying? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, no one will argue that we're beginning to see uh, congestion on the main uh, interstate, uh, interstates that surround the the entry into the airport, I-225 and I-70. Certainly a year from now, two years from now, we'll look at how we've been able to abate some of that congestion. Two, ridership is important. Um, So we'll look and see how people are using the line uh, to get to and from the airport, as well as the R-line coming in out of uh, Aurora will be critical. Um, And so, yeah, we will look at those things. And, and, and obviously, we want to encourage people to use it for the convenience, for the affordability, and uh, for, the, for the ease in which you can uh, get into and from the airport. You talk about affordability. Yeah. On Wednesday, the Colorado Fiscal Institute said that RTD's new fare structure, and this is system-wide, it's not specific to the A-line, that it's unfair because it increases fares overwhelmingly used by the poor, like local bus service, while decreasing fares primarily used by higher-income riders. Uh, so routes like regional and airport service. Right. How do you respond? I think that's a, it's a valid uh, question and one in which, you know, the, the directors of RTD, I'm sure, look at that. They're very uh, conscientious uh, group of individuals. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, with regards to transit and regional transit systems and, and uh, public transportation systems, this has all over the country, this has always been an issue uh, in, in re- with regards to how do you create an equitable, not so much uh, equal pay, but equal sacrifice 
sacrifice to move people about the city and about the region. And so I know this is top of mind for, for RTD, and it's certainly one of the issues they need to uh, continue to address, and I, I encourage them to do that. Do you think that the fair structure is equitable as it is today? I'm not as in tune or attuned with the, the fair structure and how they go about setting that fair structure, but I do know it's top of mind because I've talked to those directors um, who say, you know, we are thoughtful or we are thinking about how we move people uh, equitably across the city. Um, and it is a concern from them. It's also a very costly system uh, to operate in. One, they have to keep that in top of mind as well. Uh, that is facing their own expenses. Yeah. Um, so tomorrow's opening of the train seems to be the latest in a series of bright spots for Denver coming on the heels of Virgin Airways opening service out of DIA. Not long after U.S. News & World Report has named Denver the best place to live in the U.S., uh, but not everyone is cheering your administration. You know, last week, an unarmed man wanted in connection with a bank robbery was killed by a Denver police officer after officials said he made a threatening type maneuver. And it was the third officer involved shooting in Denver this year. In 2015, there was the shooting death of Jessica Hernandez. The year before that, Ryan Ronquillo. These incidents have spawned a lot of raw feelings towards law enforcement in Denver's minority community. How do you respond to those who say Denver police have been quick to pull the trigger, particularly in minority communities. I think it's very important that we uh, continue to work on having thoughtful, uh, progressive conversations in the community, all communities in the city of Denver with regards to police-race relations. Every one of these incidents are tragic, and we have to make sure that we continue to take each of them individually as we investigate them thoroughly. Um, I think it would be um, uh, important for us to continue to talk about how we're training our officers, um, how we um, respond um, uh, when we have these sort of, of incidents with great deal of transparency, releasing the information as soon as we can to the public so they gain understanding in terms of the status of the investigation and where people are going. So you have to make sure that people understand that we take these seriously. And when we sense or feel that there is a, a pattern of concern that we ought to be on, be, be on as a city, we're on it. Are you seeing any patterns? You mentioned training, for example. Absolutely. What, what, what would be a deficit in training, do you well, think? Well, I, I mean, that, that's really a, a question for Chief White. I'm not a police officer, but I can tell you that one of the things that we have asked, we have done with our police officers, make sure each of our officers are trained in critical incident uh, techniques, how to de-escalate situations um, as, as best as we can, uh, as they can when they come into situations. You know, our officers do a very, a very difficult job every day. They never know how situations are going to turn. We've also recently had three officers who were shot in the line of duty. Um, and so there is a heightened tension on both sides. And we have to abate that through better uh, communication and relationship building, continue to train our officers, continue to communicate to our officers about working to de-escalate uh, um, with the skills that we have brought into the classroom for them. Um, and I think Chief White has done a great job in really working to try to continue to um, create that space where officers are better equipped and, and, and better prepared to enter these situations. Meanwhile, the Fraternal Order of Police has given you a failing grade in the area of satisfactorily performing your fundamental duty to make the city and county of Denver safe. Among the charges leveled by the group was that you haven't increased the size of the police force to adequate levels and that, quote, in the face of increasing crime, Mayor Hancock's lack of leadership has placed the citizens of Denver and the men and women of the police department that serves them at risk. Uh, a fundamental question there is, does Denver need more cops? Yes, we have uh, conducted 
enough analysis to know that Denver needs more police officers. Uh, my job is not to listen to the fraternal order of the police. I'm not sure they really bring a lot of credibility uh, to these issues. Um, you know, their, their bombastic uh, language and inability to communicate with administrations, not just mine, but previous administrations, I think demonstrate kind of their 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 self-interest here um, that is not necessarily in the best interest of the community. My job is to walk the balance. We need to ask, not only do we need more police officers, how many police officers do we need? Where do we need more police officers? And how do we ramp them up in a very fiscal, uh, operational, responsible manner? And how and, soon do you think those questions uh, could be answered? Oh, we're already answering them. We're already moving forward with getting more officers into training. We have expanded training classes, and we're, we're working to bring 85 new officers on this year alone, which is larger than we've ever had, quite frankly, in terms of our classes. I asked two years ago, before the Fraternal Order of Police ever opened their mouths about more police officers, I asked the police chief, tell me how many police officers we need. We're not going to do this with a knee-jerk reaction. We're not going to do it because the Fraternal Order of Police wants certain staffing in terms of who's on cars and that they get to work with their favorite friend on the police department. The reality, we're going to do this in a very analytical manner, one that makes sense and one that is fiscally responsible and is in tune with the growth and the, the direction of the city. And the chief came back with a number, and he and I started working working toward that. So we have been on this trajectory uh, for several years now, and uh, we're moving forward with the plan now. You talked uh, just a bit earlier about communication between law enforcement and the community. And um, I want to say that during January's annual Martin Luther King Jr. Marade, there was a protest by Black Lives Matter that called you to task on a number of issues, including the police and sheriff's office and homelessness and affordable housing. The Black Lives Matter family was hoping greatly to be able to address the mayor of this city for whom salary we cover. And yet, as we spoke and exercised our First Amendment right to speak, black women speaking at the feet of Dr. King, our mayor turned his back and left. A few weeks ago, that group also spoke out at a community gathering at Thomas Thomas Jefferson High School. Uh And you have shown a willingness to meet with the people of Denver uh, through regular community uh, get-togethers, for example. Have you approached Black Lives Matter to attempt to... Uh, iron out your differences. Absolutely. So let me let me be very clear. Um, I don't know who that was speaking. I don't know many of their the players there with Black Lives Matters, but let me be clear. I would never and have never left the Martin Luther King Marade. I heard every word they said. I was there the entire time. I marched with uh, the thousands of folks who were there, and I was at both locations as we always do. Um, many of us were marching and fighting for the right for us to have that march way before many of the people who were speaking at that rally or who took over the stage even started coming down to MLK. And so the reality is we were there, we never left, and uh, we heard every one of the words that they they said. Secondly, we have reached out to Black Lives Matter. They've, uh, you know, there's not much that they say that we necessarily disagree with. Um, the, the key is uh, I come from um, civil rights organization groups. I've led them. I've led negotiations on behalf of this community, whether it was police, excessive force concerns, whether it was profiling on the streets. I've done all that growing up and testifying at the state capitol on many of these issues. Um, so we don't necessarily disagree. Um, one, what we want to do is sit down and have a constructive conversation about how we can continue to address some of the issues that are a top of concern for them. And how does how does that happen? Do well, we invited them in, and many of them, they, they sent back a letter with some demands saying, you, uh, we won't sit with you unless you do X, Y, and Z. 
those things we could not do. And so it's like we really want to have this conversation. If you want to sit down and have a constructive conversation, let's have it. The reality is the stuff they're talking about with regards to uh, excessive force, reforming the sheriff's department, reforming the police department, homelessness, housing. There isn't a city, a city in the nation who has leaned in on these issues under my administration um, as much as we have. And uh, we, if we would encourage them to take a look at some of the things we've done. Have we been perfect? No, but we have leaned in. We've not run from these issues and we'll continue to address them. Well, almost a year ago, the focus was indeed on the Denver Sheriff's Office with promises of reform and recommendations made by you and other city officials. But a Denver Post report from earlier this month said there are still examples of excessive use of force, failure to make proper rounds at the jail. Do you have a sense of how long it will take to change the culture with the sheriff's department? One of the most difficult things, Ryan, to do is to change a culture of a massive organization like the sheriff's department. But we are lean, we are leaning in and we're very committed to making these uh, transformative uh, changes. Give me an example it, of a transformative change. Well, I mean, for example, new leadership in the department. Uh, I actually took to the people of Denver um, an initiative last November or November before last to really allow the sheriff department, the sheriff of the county to appoint his or her cabinet. In other words, not just allow folks who have applied and have gone through um, a process to have property rights in those positions, but to be able to bring in their own leadership and say, if we're going to change, we got to be able to bring creative-minded people, different skill sets, folks who not necessarily grew up in the system, but folks who bring different external ideas to the table. And that power and did not exist before. It didn't exist before, so we created that. Secondly, every sheriff in the system I require to go through critical incident training, learning how to de-escalate situations as opposed to whatever the culture was created in terms of the way they were they were uh, trained to respond. And so critical incident training, by the end of this year, every sheriff deputy will be trained in those skills. And we have not only that, but we've begun to train uh, deputies differently on how to deal with those situations inside the jail. I said this from the very beginning. This didn't happen overnight. We're talking decades of the kind of training and kind of indoctrination that has occurred with the sheriff's department. I believe most of our sheriff deputies are are, are great men and women who work very hard to do their job every day. Uh, Some have made mistakes, and we shouldn't paint the entire department with this broad brush. But what we should do is to make sure they have the skill sets and they have the tools to do better as a group. And that's what we're working to do. It's going to take time as we pull back every layer. We're going to have to address every layer we find and every challenge to the new culture that we're bringing in. It does take time. I said it from day one after we learned more about what was going on. This is going to be a process. Let's be patient and let's make sure we build the best sheriff's department. It would be inappropriate for us to rush in and try to change what has taken decades to, to create because it won't work. So how long until the culture is what you want it to be? Well, Would I think say- we're saying it evolving now. I mean, what is not reported in the media or videos I, I received of sheriff deputies who are successfully talking uh, detainees down from, um, you know, situations that, you know, in the past would have been escalated into something where someone could be injured. You know, we, we still have unfortunate incidents, but we're working hard to change it. And I know the deputies are committed to to doing better. Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock is my guest. You're listening to Colorado Matters. To the issue of homelessness and the city's recent sweeps of encampments in the ballpark neighborhood, the streets since have mostly remained clear, but... Some might say that the city has lost some of its humanity in the process. How would you respond to those who feel that way? You know, it's interesting. It's how you define humanity. There are some who will say you should have let the 75 individuals who created encampments on the street to stay there in very inhumane, unsafe, 
uh, unsanitary conditions, um, unhealthy conditions. We had felonious activities that were taking place in, in those encampments. We had people who were defecating on the streets um, and people were sleeping out in, you know, quite frankly, temperatures that were not safe for anybody to sleep out in. What we made a commitment to do, and it took us five to six months, quite frankly, to enact the the moving in and, and to begin to move people to safer, healthier conditions, more sanitary conditions, was to make sure, one, we had safe conditions for people to move into. Secondly, um, that we did this with a great deal of compassion and where everyone was kept safe, the police officers, the public health, people who moved in, a public works team, as well as the individuals who were in these encampments. And you know what? Quite frankly, moving in, made uh, it was done safely. Uh, it was done humanely. Um, you cannot convince me, Ryan, anyone, to say it is more compassion to say sleep on the street, use unsanitary conditions, be subject to unsafe, unhealthy conditions are better than to say, I need to move you indoors for your own health. And we've got conditions. We've got opportunities for you to be safe, warm in sanitary with sanitary uh, um, uh, facilities for you. Those things to me make more sense. So if you're sitting here saying to me that others believe that that was less humane, well, then I guess it is based on your perspective. But I believe it's more humane. What we have seen is about a third of those folks have moved to transitional housing since we broke up those encampments. And it is more safe, it's more humane for not only the people who are in encampment, but folks who live and work and entertain around the area. But we also know that there are service-resistant yep. folks. That's yep. the, the buzzword for those who are resistant to go into a shelter for any number of reasons. Right. Uh, it could be PTSD. It mm-hmm. could be, uh, again, a, a variety of reasons. I, I want to um, talk to you a bit about Portland, Oregon. We had recently on the show... Uh, that mayor's chief of staff. And that city is allowing sleeping outdoors in specific places. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason they're doing that is because camping bans have not been faring well in the courts. Are you preparing for the possibility that the bans could be struck down? Uh, No, we're not. We're we're moving forward with a more comprehensive plan. And by the way, I met with Mayor Hills and and his uh, deputy chief of staff that actually runs the program. Just last week, I was in Portland, Oregon, meeting with them. And uh, every step of their plan has been met with challenges, and they've met them with opportunities. what we have chosen to do is that we don't believe that it's as humane, it's very humane to be out on our streets. I'm not passing judgment on the mayor of Portland. The diff, the, you know, we have different uh, climate here in Denver, and we have different expectations with regards to how we treat our individuals in our street. The reality is, Mayor Hell said we were absolutely out of space in which to move. Those individuals. Part We're, of it is that they lack shelter space. They lack shelter space. And it, it's a different situation in Denver. Absolutely. Well, we have created shelter space. We, When we had city-owned vacant buildings, we created shelter space. We created the community uh, resource, uh, resource uh, the Lawrence Street Community Center across the street where these individuals were were uh, encamped. Um, we have moved people to recreation centers to sleep safely and more uh, sanitary and more healthy and uh, in, in healthier conditions. So we have made this, we have rec centers and we have buildings that we have moved people to, and we created that capacity with our partners around the region. This is a city, Ryan, that I want to be very clear, that spends, will spend in 2016, $47 million on homelessness. $47 million with a comprehensive approach around behavior, health services, 
medical health services, transitional housing, shelter, um, making sure that we're supporting our partners who are also providing shelter, meals, and clean showers uh, for individuals. Is it, um, is it short-sighted, outreach. though, is it short-sighted, though, not to prepare for the eventuality or the possibility that camping bans uh, fail in the courts? Is no, no, I, I, don't, I'm, I don't mean to say that we're absolutely not doing it. Our law department in the city of Denver has been working on this issue ever since the enactment of the ordinance, and they've been monitoring and we've been adjusting how we, we handle certain situations and, and, and tweaking um, our, our policies and procedures along the way. So we have stayed on it all along. This topic relates naturally to affordable housing. Yes. About eight months ago, you spoke of raising money, perhaps as much as $15 million a year, to subsidize the building of around 6,000 affordable units. Mm-hmm. Some of that money, you said, could come from an increase in property taxes as well as other local and state money. Where is the city today in regards to those goals? We expect to deploy that $15 million effort in uh, 2017. Um, and basically in 2013, when the people of Denver debruced the city, they actually allowed us to access some mills that we already had in uh, abeyance. Um, we only deployed half of those mills. And what the plan called for was deploying one additional mill uh, and then doing some a partnership through uh, uh, service impact fees with developers in the city of Denver. And there's a lot of city uh, vocabulary in, yes. in what you just told yes. us, but essentially to say that the city has some money. Yes. To, yes. To, we have the capacity to, to deploy. To yeah, we have the capacity to deploy these resources based on votes of the people of Denver. And so in terms of units, in terms of where you want the city to be for affordable housing and where it is today. The reality is we are recreating affordable housing every day. Um, the city of Denver, through our 3 by 5 initiative, have already created some 1,300 units um, and we are 1,700 units and we have uh, 1,200 that are under development today. So we were, we we're ahead of the plan of creating 3,000 units by in five years. Years. We've also created revolving loan fund, um, as well as our uh, social Tell us impact. The, what is the importance the of the revolving? revolving yeah. Well, so we've been taking general fund money and setting it aside into a fund where developers can partner with us who are wanting to build affordable housing or make affordable housing units available. And if there is a th- you know a gap in financing, we can help fill that gap and through to, the revolving loan. To fund. what extent are they taking advantage? Oh, they're of that. taking advantage of. We've been able to create over two thousand units as a result of that. So developers are coming in where they may be doing two hundred units. They may say we want to do twenty five or hundred of those units. Units uh, for affordable housing. Uh, we've also have the social impact bond that we just released, where 250 uh, chronically homeless will be able to access transitional housing as a result of our efforts at creative use of this new tool that municipalities are are deploying. So here's the reality: this 15 million dollars is in addition to what we're doing already, and our goal is to to try to do as much as we can, as quickly as we can, to fill the gap of affordable housing and the need for affordable housing in Denver. The city can't do it by itself, even with deploying 15 million. We won't be able to do this alone, and we are calling on all of our stakeholders and our partners in both the public, nonprofit, and private, and all of the sectors uh, to be our partners. Finally, during your campaign for mayor in 2011, um, you presented yourself as a man of the people, whether it was dealing with your family's homelessness, Mm -hmm. your brother's death from AIDS, or wanting to improve schools because of issues that your children faced. Do you consider criticism like we've been discussing here Merely something that comes with the territory of this office, or does it hurt on some level? Because in many ways, as you explained to us, you have been where the public is coming from. Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a combination of things. So first of all, I think it's the fact that I play the role of uh, social, economic, um, 
convener and and leader in a sense from my role with the Urban League. And so I'm still called on often to be more of a social uh, activist. And when people come the, in, then the mayor's office then, can allow. Then the mayor, well, not the mayor's office can allow, but really the the mayor has a different role in terms of the balance that the mayor has. But I I think the social activism that I played in the past has helped me. I mean, I'm exper- I, I understand what people are asking, and I'm not surprised by it. But I think here's what this this is. I think it does come with the territory, and I'm okay with that. I think it also comes with the fact that I am a different uh, type of leader. I don't run from the fire. We lean in. And and this, these issues of affordable housing, the issues of homelessness, the issue of race community relations uh, with the police department, they've been around for a long time, Ryan. The issue with the sheriff's department happened to fall into my lap. These issues have been here, and people complained about them for years. I'm the mayor who said, we're going to fix it. I'm not going to leave this for the next mayor. So we're leaning in. And because we are leaning in, obviously, we now become subject to criticism. If I turned and walked away from it, hoping they would go away, possibly they would go away. But that's not who I am. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Michael Hancock, mayor of Denver. He joined us ahead of tomorrow's opening of the train line to DIA. Tomorrow, another mayor joins us. Former Denver mayor Federico Pena, a stop along the train line bears his name, and he'll reflect on the original decision to move the airport well outside the city center. Still ahead, the Denver band Flowbots takes the recording studio to the people. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We get your feedback and update you on stories we've covered in a segment called Loud and Clear. So let's get to an update. Earlier this year, we talked with a Colorado man who was in prison for nearly three decades and who maintained his innocence all along. In 1987, Clarence Moses Eel was convicted of rape. He later raised money to have evidence tested for DNA, but discovered that evidence had been thrown in the trash. Still, Moses Eel says while in prison, he tried not to become consumed by anger because of what he saw it do to other inmates. It topples that individual. And by me standing in the shadows observing this about human behavior, I said I wasn't going there, not me. Moses Eel was set free in December after another man admitted he'd had sex with the victim the night of the attack. He also admitted to hitting her. The defense urged prosecutors to dismiss the case altogether, but Denver District Attorney Mitch Morrissey has now indicated he'll move forward with a new trial. The DA wouldn't comment on this ongoing case, but here is defense attorney Eric Klein. We're obviously very disappointed. Uh, Mr. Moses Hill is a man who's been proclaiming his innocence for going on 30 years now. And this was a shaky case from the beginning where the only evidence is an incredibly problematic identification. Uh, And the forensic evidence is inconsistent with Mr. Moses Hill and is consistent with the convicted rapist who has given sworn testimony admitting his involvement. In the new trial, scheduled for May 16th, jurors will not be told that Moses Seal has already served 28 years in prison for the crime. Flowbots are at work on a new album. The Denver hip-hop group is approaching it differently from past recordings by including voices of the community. They're holding recording sessions on the road to record a sort of mass choir. The next one is Saturday in Denver at Capitol Heights Presbyterian Church. Our producer Stephanie Wolf dropped in on last month's recording workshop. A note posted on the church entrance starts, Yo! 
enter this building at the risk of stepping out of culturally enforced boundaries. Music wafts from the sanctuary. But these aren't songs of prayer. These are songs of social protest. Several dozen people showed up on a Saturday to participate in the Flowbot's latest project, No Enemies. Their mission? To raise their voices with the members of the Youth 303 Choir, Boulder Brass Band Gorogor Orchestra, and the Flowbots. Some were apprehensive to sing with people they didn't know. It's scary. <laughs> it's scary. I'm not going to lie. That's 25-year-old Jacob Adams. He learned about this project through Urban Peak, a nonprofit that supports homeless youth and actually holds weekly jam sessions for the musically inclined. Adam says music has been his salvation. To get to a point in my life where I am getting back with the music, but not only just by myself, but with a community of people who want to see changes in their community, it only makes me feel like my life has come complete full circle. Flowbot's Jamie Laurie, a.k.a. Johnny Five, says the project was inspired by the late Denver civil rights activist Vincent Harding. He always was encouraging us to find ways to bring singing back to the movements of today. And so this is our effort to kind of respond to his call. His call was, hey, Flowbot's, you guys are musicians. Where are the songs for today's movement? We thought, well, I guess if we want songs for today's movements, we have to get together and create them. We have to get together and sing them. No Enemies is also the name of the Flowbots' forthcoming double album. The first disc will feature new studio recordings, and the second will feature these community sessions. Some of the songs are originals, others are traditional but with new messages, some morph into chants, and they touch on themes like racial injustice, immigration, and wages. By the afternoon, Adams, the formerly homeless musician, worries less about staying on key. He links arms with others, and the people lining the pews begin to sway. We forgot how to just be compassionate human beings with one another, so music actually tears down that veil and that barrier in order to let people understand, yeah, we feel the same things as everybody else. The Flowbots say the No Enemies message isn't for politicians. It's for the public. With the hope they'll look around and say, or sing, it doesn't have to be like this. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. You can take part in the Flowbots No Enemies Project Saturday at the Capitol Heights Presbyterian Church in Denver. And we'll be right back with one of the most uncomfortable settings for a novel, a dressing room with a big mirror. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl is a new debut novel by Mona Awad. It takes on a touchy subject, women and weight. Awad is a Ph.D. candidate in creative writing and English literature at the University of Denver. She spoke with Andrea Dukakis. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Why use the word fat in the title? Um, Well, I knew from the very beginning that I was going to be using that word. You know, it's a very charged word. I think that it inspires a lot of very charged emotions and it's provocative. But it's also it brings to mind, I think, a lot of fixed ideas and notions and assumptions. And I wanted to complicate those in the book. I wanted to explore those. Why do we have those? Um, So it was very important to me to put that on the cover. And talk a little bit about those assumptions. Um, When we hear the word fat, what do we think? 
Well, it's got far more psychological implications than I think we kind of allow for. I think we see something very physical when we think of the word fat. But to me, it's always been more of an interior thing as well. Um, And that's what I wanted to explore in the book, was how it feels on the inside to feel that way on the outside. Your main character, Lizzie, struggles all her life with weight and Mm -hmm. body image. She goes from overweight to skinny to somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. Is this character you or is it someone in your life? Well, you know, I mean, it was I I myself have struggled with weight. Um, Frankly, I don't know a woman (laughs) who hasn't to some degree. But uh, she's drawn from what I observed as somebody who's gone through this and what I've seen, you know, a lot of people that I care about have also gone through this. And just how deeply that feeling of being judged by how you're how you're seen can affect so many different aspects of your life and also can just affect the way that you see yourself, you know? And part of it might be that you think you're being judged. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think with this book kind of explores that in-between space, you know, between how Lizzie imagines she is seen based on her own ideas of herself and how she is actually seen. But where did she get those ideas about herself in the first place? Did they come from outside? Did they come from inside? Is it somewhere in the middle? You know, the book is kind of complicating that. Where do we get the idea that we're fat? The book starts with Lizzie as a teenager, and uh, she's with her best friend Mel in the first chapter. Mel makes appearances throughout the book. The two are sitting in McDonald's in that first chapter, and at one point in their conversation, they compare Dairy Queen blizzards to McFlurries. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems like food and weight are a major part of their young relationship. I wonder how universal you think it is for these young female relationships. Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, that friendship is very, very, very important to this book. You know, Lizzie and Mel are kind of, uh, they're very, very close, and they're also kind of mirrors of each other. And at that point in their lives, they're young teenagers. They're sort of just becoming aware of their own bodies. They're becoming aware of how they're being looked at by men. They're starting to become aware of each other as potential competition. But they're also bonded by the fact that, you know, they're sort of outsiders. They live in suburbia. You know, they both go to Catholic school. In a place you call Misery Saga. That's right. Yeah. And I I mean, I chose that very intentionally because I I like kind of the suburbia is kind of like a flat backdrop to how dreamy these girls are and how they're kind of on the cusp of all of these different possibilities. There is a lot of fat prejudice in the world. Is this book an attempt to confront that or to ask people to reconsider I think probably both. Um, you know, um, it is it is a very provocative title, and it does ask you to look at this character very closely and um, to kind of get a very very close up glimpse of how much damage these perceptions, these outside perceptions, or what she imagines these outside perceptions are, are doing to her. So it is asking you to confront that sort of damage that I think body image issues can really do. But I also think it's asking questions about how to deal with that, how to deal with that damage. Throughout the novel, Lizzie has this inner dialogue that's funny, but also very critical of other women. Yes. In some ways, it's because she's comparing herself to others when it comes to things like exercise and eating. What are you trying to say about Lizzie's perception of other women? Well, I think, you know, female relationships are 
Very, very complicated. And they're they're at the heart of this book because I think a lot of the way that we see ourselves depends on who we happen to be standing next to that day, who we happen to be having lunch with, um, you know, who our best friend is, who the girl we hate is, you know, who's knocking on the door when we're trying on an outfit and it doesn't fit quite right. And I think I was trying to kind of show all of the different layers and how body image can sometimes be at the heart of them in some ways. But you could say these female relationships in our world also offer a lot of support. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's every relationship that Lizzie has. I mean, in this book kind of investigates a number of them. You know, there's her mother. um, There's her relationship with... uh, clothing store salespeople. Um, and we'll her, talk about that in yes, a bit. Yes, yes. Um, and her, her best friend, of course, and then just other women that she encounters in her workplace. And, you know, I mean, there's definitely a tension there. There's support. There's potentially love. There's concern. But then there's also these other things. Lizzie lives with her mother, who's divorced from her father. Their relationship is also fraught with a lot of tension, and weight plays a big role here, too. Right. Is this something you view as typical between mothers and daughters? Mm. I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of the I was really striving to get at some things that perhaps were very specific to Lizzie and her mother because how much I mean, body image really informs a lot of aspects of their kind of really complex dynamic. You know, I mean, the mother cares about Lizzie very much, but there's also a desire to live vicariously. You know, she herself is overweight. Um Lizzie is overweight as a young teenager and then loses weight. The mother's very proud, but the mother's love is kind of in some ways a little smothering. Um, It does some damage, but that's not really intentional. Mm -hmm. So mothers and daughters, that relationship, you know, they're very complicated and they involve a lot of kind of conflicting feelings and emotions at the same time. And that's what this book is really interested in investigating. In her late teens, Lizzie meets men on the internet. Uh, she has a friend take pictures of her so she <laughs> yeah. looks skinnier. Yes. And she ends up having one-night stands and dating some pretty um, maybe strange men. Yeah. What leads her to those relationships? Oh, I think that's a good question. Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of it definitely has to do with um, – her own f- sense of her limitations as a potential player in, you know, um, the dating world. And these men with these particular relationships, especially on the Internet where she's not seen, mm-hmm. she has control over how she is seen because she's using words to describe that. Um, and it falls apart when her friend tries to take a picture because that that's, you know. Words, <laughs> no words can fix that, right? right? Um, no lighting, no, you know, um, even though she tries, of course. So, yeah, I think she chooses these relationships because she has more control, but then ultimately does she? And that's the thing. There's a turning point in the book. Lizzie, who becomes Elizabeth, gets married. She loses a lot of weight and, and becomes almost bony. Mm-hmm. She's obsessed with what she eats, which is not very much. And she's not very happy. In fact, she seems no happier than she was when she was heavier. It's almost as if you're saying that no matter what body a person inhabits, they're still that same person. And that it doesn't offer the transformation that they're hoping for. Is that your view? Well, I think I was interested. I don't have a definitive answer, but I think I was interested in the question. Like when we change our bodies, do we really change ourselves? You know, or is something else lost in the losing of flesh? Um, and I think that in, in this particular case, yes. 
It's almost as if as she becomes bonier, she becomes more regimented and less at ease in a certain way. Yeah, and it's it's that feeling of discomfort. It's a new skin. And how do we adjust to that new skin when we're still ultimately ourselves? And yet she continues all along to struggle with her weight. I want you to read the beginning of a chapter called The Von Furstenberg and I, which takes place after Lizzie gets divorced and starts to gain weight again. Sure. So The Von Furstenberg and I. Despite my better judgment, I'm in the fitting room wrestling with the von Furstenberg again. I've thrown it over my head, and I'm attempting to wedge my arms through the armholes, even though it's got my shoulders and ribcage at a vice grip. The fabric stretched tight over my face so I can't see, and it's blocking my air supply, but I'm doing my best to breathe through twill. This is the moment of deepest despair. This is the moment she always chooses to knock on the door. She's referring to the sales lady in the clothing store who's knocking on the door. And it's one of several scenes in the book where Lizzie is in a dressing room. Why are dressing rooms so important in this? Uh, that, that is a very good question. Um, uh, I think that I think dressing rooms are very universal in the kinds of emotions that they elicit. Um, you know, uh, I think that, you know, you have to you have to get in there into this narrow space. It's private, but it's still public. You're confronted with a mirror, potentially very bad lighting. You're overhearing conversations about other people's bodies. You're in there with a piece of clothing. You don't know how it's going to fit. Um, the stakes around that are always changing depending on what the occasion is or if you just need something. Um, you're bound to feel some dread. You're going to have to reckon with that body, you know, and there's a narrative right there. And for somebody who is uh, dealing with body image issues, that those stakes just go way, way up. And there's something about dealing with a sales clerk oh, along yeah. with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's the suspense and tension. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This book came out in February, and you've done some readings and other public events and have some planned. I imagine Lizzie or Elizabeth's story resonates with a lot of people, women probably in particular. Can you tell me about a few reactions you've heard while traveling? Yeah. I mean, I, I what I've really liked is that, you know, women of various ages and uh, women of, of various sizes have approached me and um, responded in a way, they, they really emotionally connected to the book, and that meant a great deal to me. Um, a lot of women thanked me for not making Lizzie a specific size, and that was a very intentional choice on my part because I did want – I do think this is a very universal kind of feeling, just not feeling at ease in your skin. So I, I really appreciated that. And one woman in particular, um, she came up to me and she said, I'm 71 years old and I still feel like a fat girl. So that was very emotional for me. Mona, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mona Awad's debut novel is 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl. She spoke with Andrea Dukakis. Awad lives in Denver, and you can read an excerpt of her debut book at cprnews.org. Coming up, those electronic signs over the highway that are getting downright snarky. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Maybe you've noticed how sassy those electronic highway signs are getting in Colorado. Messages like, get your head out of your apps and drop the phone to make it home. 
The state's transportation department wants people to put an end to distracted driving. Officials estimate it was behind more than 15,000 crashes in Colorado last year. And they want your help in this campaign, too. Sam Cole is a spokesman for CDOT. He's on the phone. Hi, Sam. Hi, Ryan. You're stealing some of my thunder there. Oh, yes. You wanted to read us some of the best ones you've come up with. Uh, What are a few of the others? Well, as far as Distracted Driving Awareness Month, we've received over 500 uh, slogans on our Facebook page. Um, One of my favorites is Don't Drive Intexticated. Intexticated. I see. Okay. And another one is uh, Texting and Driving. Oh, sell no. Oh, sell no. All right. So you are sourcing some of these from the the people, I I understand. Yes, because full disclosure, I am not the most creative person in the world. So um, normally I have a PR team and also we borrow from other states around this. But recently we've gone to the public and just are amazed at the great slogans we're getting. You borrow from other states. Is there a state that has led the way on snarky slogans? Iowa. That's where we got uh, the get your head out of your apps which kind of really was the instigator for this whole conversation. We're like, it started a lot of conversations. You know, there's only so many many ways you can say fasten your seatbelt or don't drink and drive or don't text and drive. So they started using, as in your words, snarky um, slogans, and um, people really notice them and are paying attention, and it's starting conversations like never before. But starting conversations isn't what you want to do. You want people to put their phones away. No, we want them to talk about why using your cell phone while you're driving is something that's dangerous. We want somebody to come home and say, I read the most um, bizarre um, slogan on, the, on our digital message board today about texting and driving. So it usually starts out with the snarky slogan, but then it always leads into a conversation about, about the safety. It always leads to the conversation, but is it changing behaviors? Is there perhaps evidence in Iowa that this has made a difference? Well, you know, when we can't look at um, changes kind of in a vacuum. We know that um, changes in safety come about through law enforcement, public education, many different channels, and uh, this is just one of them. This is just a very small um, channel that we're using to raise awareness. Um, we've got many other campaigns out there to change behavior. So, I would like to think it does. And in fact, um, fatalities are down by about 20% this year, but I'm not going to say it has anything to do with our our snarky slogans. All right. So folks who submit these slogans to the, I guess, the CDOT Facebook page, do they have the chance of their slogan making it onto one of the jumbotrons? (laughs) Absolutely. So, um, you know, there's no grand prize thousand dollar award or anything, just knowing that you're doing a good public service and maybe saving a life. But yes, we're getting getting lots of people to submit slogans, and then um, then we're whittling them down to just a few, and we've offered them up to another vote. We narrowed them down to four, and then people can vote on the four. And uh, last week's um, winner was um, drop, drop the Phone, Make It Home. Drop the Phone, Make It Home, yeah. right, which I said in our yep. introduction. Several people noted on your Facebook page that the signs themselves are distracting, quoting, for example, Regina Jones of Aurora. Having signs as reminders is good, but this is also a distraction because you're trying to read the sign while driving. How do you respond? Well, you know, those signs are in your direct line of sight as you're driving. We also try to keep them very um, minimal as far as the number of words. And, um, you know... If, if you can't, I mean, driving is something that you have to be able to double task. You got to be able to scan the environment for hazards in the road. You have to do many things while you're driving. And if it's unsafe to, to read the digital message sign ahead of you because of 
traffic, then don't read them. Sam, thanks. Thank you, Ryan. Sam Cole, communications manager for CDOT. You can try your hand at creating a distracted driving message through CDOT's Facebook page. We'd love to see what you come up with. Tweet at Colorado Matters. I was thinking, don't snap your neck over Snapchat. But that's why I'm not in the slogan business. Finally today, Denver singer-songwriter Rachel McHugh caught the attention of our colleagues at Open Air when she entered NPR's Tiny Desk Concert, uh, contest last year. Uh, McEwig doesn't have an official album yet, but she recently stopped by the CPR Performance Studio to share some original songs, including one about her love-hate relationship with city life. This is her song, Whistles. Wish all in the woods is much different Than a whistle through a city on a weekend Dreamy voice belongs to Rachel McHugh of Denver. We found her through NPR's Tiny Desk Concert Contest. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.